0: Today we talk about the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we discuss the political ramifications of this six weeks out from an election, and we discuss why I do believe that Trump and the Senate Republicans should move to fill this vacant seat as quickly as possible. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture. where We explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal, more than anything, of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. Happy Tuesday, everyone. I hope you had an excellent weekend and a great start to your week. I cannot believe I'm saying this, but we are six weeks out from the election today. Six weeks from today, Tuesday, November 3rd, we are going to be voting on our president, we are going to be voting on our local elected officials, we are going to be voting on local city councils and mayor races and congressional candidates, and in some states you'll be voting on your Senate races. Over the next few weeks, by the way, we are going to go over uh, all of what's on your ballot that's going to be part of our election series, which I'll tell you a bit about at the end of this episode. All that to say, it's amazing how fast this year has flown by. I would envision that the next six weeks is going to fly by as well. Also, the election got significantly crowded. Crazier over the weekend, turned on its head in quite a big way with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and now this vacant Supreme Court seat. That is what we are going to spend the majority of our time talking about together today, which we will jump into in a second. But if we thought 2020 couldn't get any crazier, we were wrong. 2020 got significantly crazier over the weekend, and we're going to unpack all of it. So, before we do, though, I want to give two quick updates about the show. First is this. I was so looking forward to starting my video series last week, the the video portion of Refining Politics and Culture, where I create kind of a video weekly update around current events in culture. Unfortunately, I was not able to get to that last week due to kind of a perfect storm of circumstances. My surgery recovery was a bit more brutal than I had expected, largely due to my own fault, though. I probably started back into life a little too quickly, and uh, I paid the price for it a few days later. So last week was a bit rough in that regard. Also, I was starting back at work and then also ran into some technical difficulties with the video. All that to say, I am looking forward to jumping into it in the coming days. I will keep you updated. I'll have another update for you on Thursday when we are going to launch into that weekly video portion of Refining Politics and Culture in addition to these Tuesday, Thursday shows. So stay updated for that. Thank you for your there. Secondly, I've heard from a few of you that are subscribed to the show with your emails that some of the emails that I send on Friday end up in your spam folder. So, helpful note to everybody that's subscribed to the show through my website, Refining Politics and Culture. If you have entered your email, please make sure that first you have confirmed your email, and then secondly, Check your spam folder if you have not received any emails from me and have been subscribed for a few weeks now. Make sure that in the spam folder, there's not a refining politics and culture email hiding in there. If there is, you can opt to have those emails from me, uh, that address sent to your inbox. Make sure that you select that, and that way, uh, hopefully into the future, you will receive every email in your primary inbox, not in your spam folder. So I wanted to kick off into today's episode by sharing... And reiterating really some news that I'm sure all of you have already heard, given that it was an international news pretty much directly after it initially broke, just minutes after most of the the developed world had heard that the late associate justice to the Supreme Court, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, had passed away at 87 years old on Friday due to complications with pancreatic cancer. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was first nominated to the bench in 93 by Bill Clinton. She had also been struggling with multiple bouts of cancer for really the last decade. It's, It's a tragic story that pancreatic cancer is a really difficult disease. It's one of the more deadly forms of cancer. And so I I think it's important to recognize that our politicians, our elected officials, our judges, et cetera, are not just these political figures. They're also people, too, that have families and friends and a community and a backstory. And though I so vehemently disagree with so much of how Justice Ginsburg led her life, how she uh, ruled from the bench, her worldview on things, her interpretation of the Constitution. I mean, we really stood as polar opposites on so many issues. Yet at the end of the day, that does not change the fact that my responsibility is the same. It is. To pray, pray for her family and her friends and those that knew her personally that the Lord would draw near to the brokenhearted as He promises to do through Scripture, and that they would receive His love and His care in this trying time. So that's the first thing. Second is an absolute desire I have, and maybe it's wishful thinking, but I would love to be at a place in our country where our elected officials, journalists, et cetera, recognize how much of a powder keg this country is. And so therefore, when there's very politically divisive moments that take place, they seek de-escalation instead of escalation on both sides of the aisle. Here's what I mean. Immediately after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we saw multiple blue check progressive journalists head to Twitter and start tweeting their frustrations and their honestly violent threats, promising rioting, looting, burning down of buildings and entire systems down if the Republicans are to move forward with something that they're constitutionally allowed to do. So for example, we saw former CNN host Reza Aslan uh, tweet, if they even try to replace RBG, we burn the entire bleeping thing down. That's a real tweet from a former CNN host, not an Antifa member, not a middle school kid venting his frustrations. That is a person who has been called a prominent journalist, threatening violence if this doesn't go the way that they desire it to go. Uh, Washington Post and GQ writer Laura Bassett said, if McConnell jams someone through, which he will, there will be riots. It's a promise. Beau Willimon said, we're shutting this country down if Trump and McConnell try to ram through an appointment before an election. He's a Writer Guild of America president. He has 162,000 followers, and that is the type of rhetoric that he was espousing to these people in this incredibly divisive time. Eliel Cruz, he's the director of communications at the Anti-Violence Project, tweeted, if the Democrats don't fight, the people are going to have to march on Washington and just shut it down ourselves. So these were the type of threats we were seeing just hours after RBG's passing. Now, the Republicans on the right were not threatening violence. I did not see one prominent conservative journalist or leader say anything like, if Trump decides not to nominate someone, we're going to burn the system down. It's ridiculous nobody would have done that. That's crazy. Uh, The right, instead, what they jumped to do is overtly politicize this right away, jumping right into work mode, not recognizing that it would probably help the country just to simmer down tensions for a few hours. So Mitch McConnell, you probably should not have released that statement on Friday night, promising to fill that seat right away and promising a vote on the floor, even though I agree with you, even though I agreed on Friday that that is the route that we need to go. We need to move to do this quickly. It was not necessary to do that and to Release that announcement just hours after her passing because you are throwing gasoline on what is already an incredibly prominent fire in the United States. All that to say, I do believe that obviously the right was far more tamed. We did not have any journalists that were threatening violence. The left needs to get control over the activist generation of their party that just sees violence as means to an end if it's necessary. I mean, that is a very dangerous road to go down. And so I hope and pray that there's some leadership on the left that stands up and says, actually, no, we're not going to act like children. Unfortunately, that is not what we're seeing. We're seeing from the highest offices on the progressive side of the aisle that they are promising to do what. Ever they possibly can to withhold this nomination from going through. All that to say, my desire and my dream is just that in the future when we have a very divisive moment or an opportunity for division, that people would just calm down for a second. Doesn't mean lose your convictions. certainly not. It just means take a few hours before sharing them. It just means everybody breathe for a minute because if we just jump on Twitter and all vent our frustrations, we're going to end up lighting all these matches that do not need to be lit. Wait till Saturday morning. There's my second observation there. It is something I pray for often, for de-escalation tactics to become popular with our our political discourse. Who knows if I'll ever get that, but I can pray for it. So third thing I want to say is this. This is a bit of a, a call out of my fellow Christian brothers and sisters. I saw a lot of friends and Christians this weekend rush to social media to... Uh, share their condolences and pay their respects to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, I believe the intentions were good. A lot of people posted these Instagram stories and these things sharing about what type of icon she was. And, And here's the problem. With the well-intended desire to pay respects to a leader in our society, I saw many Christians forego their convictions and instead fall in line with what's culturally popular in order to do what culture was calling pay your respects. So it's important to reiterate, if you hold a traditional biblical worldview about things like abortion, about things like the the healthy difference between men and women. If you hold traditional biblical worldviews around things like uh, cultural issues and gender, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not an advocate for those ideas. She She was somebody that stood directly antithetical to those ideas, often stood very antithetical to a gospel worldview. In fact, she was one of the most destructive forces in American society for pro lifers over the last few decades. In fact, And it's, again, we have to be okay with saying this, and yet still being able to pay our respects at the same time. An honest critique of her record is that under her watch, the United States allowed for horrific mass abortions to continue taking place, thousands each day, largely due to her consistent rulings, for her refusal to stand up for life and pro-life issues, the lives of the most vulnerable in society. And at every single opportunity she was given, she turned her back on those most vulnerable in our society. I'm going to give credit where credit's due. Early on in her career, she fought for some good things like workplace equality uh, back in a time where that was still emerging. So credit for where credit's due on, on issues like that. But at the end of the day, over the last few decades, she has been the main proponent in our country, judicially, for abortion moving forward, for an unhealthy modern postmodernist feminism that is very progressive in nature and that is not rooted in a biblical ethic and a biblical understanding of gender. Uh, This is who Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been over the last few decades. Now, going back to my main point here, I can pay my respects and offer my condolences and yet not cave to the culturally popular way of doing that. So when Christians were going out and they were posting these stories, hailing her as a sort of icon, what they weren't realizing that they were doing in many cases is actually promoting a set of belief systems that stand completely antithetical to the gospel, foregoing their convictions in order to exude compassion. And this is a big theme of the show. True compassion doesn't require you to let go of your convictions. You can be compassionate and hold fast to your convictions. I have been praying for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's family over the last few days. I also recognize that she was one of the most destructive forces on the bench in Supreme Court history. You can do those two things at the same time, and I refuse to believe otherwise. It's so important for us to recognize as Christians that we have a different way of going about things dictated by scripture, not by the way that culturally cultural says it's popular to address these sorts of situations. So... Do I respect Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Certainly. Do I honor her legacy on the bench? No, of course not, because her legacy on the bench stood completely antithetical to the issues I care most about over the last few years. And to watch a bunch of people who have actually been advocating over the past decade for the opposite things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's been advocating for – all of a sudden have this apparent change of heart on social media where they're praising her for some very specific things that have taken place over the last 10 years that they were standing against just last week, it, it's, it shows a lack of consistency to hold fast of our convictions. And we have to be a Christian society that says we can do this, those two at the same time, hold fast to the convictions and at the same time respect, honor, not slander, Not desire to overtly politicize or weaponize something and instead honor the family, honor uh, the, the person who passed, pray for their family and their well-being and the Lord's blessing moving forward. So those are a few observations I had related to the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg itself. Now I want to share a few of the political ramifications of this because they are certainly plentiful. There are a lot of ramifications. This threw a major wrench in the 2020 election, and I want to discuss all the various ramifications that we will witness over the next 41 days. The It is my personal opinion— And my objective perception that the right thing to do in this situation, as I look through the Constitution, Article 2, Section 2, and as I review historical precedent, it is the right thing to do for the President of the United States to quickly appoint someone, nominate someone to this position and for the Senate to vote on it, to confirm this nominee. Now. I believe that that should happen before the election. For those of you that do not know how this process works, long story short, the president nominates someone to the Supreme Court. There are nine justices on the Supreme Court. Currently, there are eight sitting after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There are nine justices in a normal session, though, with eight associate justices and one uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court. That is John Roberts, who was nominated during George W. Bush's presidency. Then what happens is after the president nominates someone, the Senate then has an opportunity to vote to either confirm or deny with a simple majority. So it only takes 51 votes to push through a Supreme Court nominee to becoming officially an associate justice on the Supreme Court. Now, here's a few reasons why I do believe that this is the case, that Trump should move to act swiftly and that the Senate should act swiftly as well. First reason is this. It's constitutional. Article 2, Section 2 gives the president this ability, and the Senate then has an opportunity to vote on whether or not to confirm or deny the president's nominee. It's not abnormal. It's constitutional. Any mainstream media pundit telling you that this is somehow a threat to our democracy has not read the Constitution. This is a very normal circumstance, and there is constitutional precedence for the president to move forward and the Senate to move forward without charge. There's no harm. There's no wrongdoing there's no foul play, there's nothing that they can be charged with in the process. There's no laws broken by doing so. There's not even necessarily any faux pas moving forward uh, by doing so. At the end of the day, it is constitutional for them to do this. There's no provisions in the constitution that says that you can't do a you cannot push forth a nominee in an election year. There's no constitutional provisions that says that there is some sort of expiration date on the president's powers to nominate a supreme court justice if they are the sitting president, they have the ability to push someone through, and the Senate has the ability to vote on it. So that's the first thing. There are a lot of ramifications, language, uh, as you read through the Constitution, but at the end of the day, it is very cut and dry regarding what the president's powers are when it comes to nominating Supreme Court justices. There's not a ton of debate around whether or not this would be okay. It's just one side likes the idea, and the other side vehemently dislikes the, the idea. Second reason I do believe that Trump should move forward and that the Senate should move to confirm swiftly is that there's historical precedence for this as well. So, Throughout history, there have been 29 Supreme Court seat vacancies open up during election years. And in 100% of those cases, the incumbent president has moved to nominate someone to that seat. So for all the mainstream progressive media outlets telling you this is so abnormal, I can't believe Trump would even be considering this. How dare Mitch McConnell go through with this? At the end of the day, it's important to remember that this is not abnormal. In fact, if Trump were to not nominate someone right now, he would be the first president in U.S. history to not nominate someone to the courts in an election year. Obama did it with Merrick Garland. Now we'll get to that situation in 2016 in just a second, but it's important to remember, this is a normal happenstance. 29 Supreme Court vacancies during election years in the past. Each president in those circumstances nominated someone to the court Not all 29 were confirmed. I'll tell you the breakdown of that a bit in a second. But it's another helpful statistic here is that 22 out of the past 44 presidents have had this very situation. So it's not uncommon at all. In fact, almost half of all sitting presidents in United States history have had this circumstance take place during one of their terms. And when parties have had the Senate and the presidency like the situation that we are currently in with Republican-controlled Senate and a Republican-controlled executive branch, 19 vacancies have taken place in an election year with nine being actually filled before the election. So even if this took place, Trump appointed some, nominated someone to the courts, the Senate were to confirm by a slim majority, this would not be even remotely the first time. This, there's been nine other times where it's happened on that timeline. This would be the second closest to an election ever, but at the end of the day... In an election year, we've had nine other seats filled when the same party controls the Senate and the presidency. Now, go back to 2016. Here is an argument on the left. They're saying, well, Mitch McConnell's such a hypocrite. In 2016, he had the opportunity to push through Merrick Garland, which is a Obama nominee to the court, and he said that during an election year, it was far too hostile. It would not be fair to the American voters. Now, here's the thing. Mitch McConnell said that he felt that way because the the American people had chosen a Republican-led Senate and a Democratic-led executive branch. So it was a split decision. So where the Democratic executive branch led by President Obama, he would nominate Merrick Garland to the court, the – the the uh, majority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, was under no constitutional obligation to push forward a vote on Merrick Garland. And Mitch McConnell's position was, because you do not Democrats control the Senate as well, there's no reason why we should push to do this before the election. Let's let the American people decide if they would like to have a consistent executive branch in Senate. Well, that ended up happening. In 2016, The executive branch transferred to Republican hands, and it's a Republican-led Senate and a Republican-led executive branch. At the time, too, it was a Republican-led House as well. All that to say, for those accusations of Mitch acting in a hypocritical manner, his response has been the same. His response has been, it would have been different if the Democrats controlled the Senate. Then they could have moved forward with a vote, and that makes sense. The American people have chosen a democratic government, and they have the opportunity to go forward with that. But when the when the American people have chosen a split Senate and executive branch, it's a fair point to say, let's wait until the American people have a choice. This election is different. The American people have chosen on a Republican president and a Republican-led Senate. There's no obligation constitutionally saying that Mitch McConnell cannot move forward, so he is claiming... I'm not a hypocrite because, again, like I said, if Democrats would have controlled the Senate, they would have had the ability to move forward with this. We know that they would have. And that's the big important piece in this, too, is that for all the Democrats saying that this is just, they cannot believe that this is happening, it's political blasphemy and all these different things, the reality is if, if the shoe was on the other foot, the Democrats would certainly be moving forward with this as well. And there's not one person in the United States that genuinely, if you really ask them to tell you with a straight face if they believe that or not, there's not one person that would say, no way, the Democrats would, would choose a different route to go about this. No, they would not. They certainly would not. It's just a reality that no matter what point of the presidency, when the executive branch controls the Republican, or when excuse me, when the executive branch is controlled by the same party that also controls the Senate, you're just going to move forward with the Supreme Court nomination. It makes sense. You have the opportunity to. So in 2016, it's important to reiterate a few statistics as well related to the Merrick Garland case. What Mitch McConnell did was actually not abnormal. In fact, only one in ten of the Supreme Court vacancies when the opposing party controlled the Senate, has ever been confirmed before the election, during election year. So, again, breakdown of the 29 uh, vacancies. Ten of those were, took place when the opposing party from the executive branch also controlled the Senate, and only one in ten of them were ever confirmed before the election. Seven of the ten were never confirmed at all. So, Mitch McConnell was one of the 7 through the 10 that said, "Nope, Merrick Garland, we're not even going to vote on it. He's not abnormal." Even in 2016, he was one of 7 instances throughout United States history where that's exactly what happened. Opposing party controlled the Senate, there was a Supreme Court nomination from the executive branch in an election year, and the the House or excuse me, the Senate majority leader said, "Nope, we're not going to take a vote on it. We're not going to confirm this person." So, not only is there constitutional precedence for this taking place and a constitutional responsibility that the president is, is uh, allocated and the Senate is allocated to confirm or deny, also there's historical precedence for this taking place. Any media pundit that tries to tell you that this is just the most far-fetched thing does not have their head on straight. They have not read the Constitution and they have not looked very far into history. I'm also old enough to remember just a few years ago when many of the same people that are criticizing Mitch McConnell for being a hypocrite now were tweeting things like hashtag do your job to the Senate. So Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, all the Democratic elites were pressuring the Senate, Elizabeth Warren, uh, et cetera, moving to move forward with confirming Merrick Garland and Mitch McConnell's Again, I told you what his statement was back in 2016. He had precedence for it. He was one of seven people that had acted similarly in the past. He said, nope, we're not going to do it. Democrats accused him, said that he was acting uh, against the duties of his job. Now, just a few years later, the Democratic side of the aisle is begging the Senate not to do their job. So this is all so political. And I understand that it's messy and it's unfortunate. It's a reality of our politics and the brokenness of D.C. The Supreme Court is far too politicized. But it does not make what the Republicans are doing wrong or unconstitutional, and the Democrats do not have a leg to stand on when they're crying hypocrisy because, like Mitch McConnell said just yesterday, he said, guys, you you said in 2016 for the Senate to move forward. We had the control over it, so we didn't have to. We weren't obligated to by the Constitution. Now we have the ability to move forward. We're wanting to. We have the power to. And now, just because it's not politically advantageous to you, you are now criticizing us for it. In fact, saying that you'll go to any ends necessary, any means necessary to achieve the ends of blocking the Supreme Court nomination, even to the point of impeaching the president again or impeaching William Barr, which, again, that just shows how far too overtly politicized the impeachment process has become. They they didn't even say what they would impeach for. They just said, we can impeach to stop this effort. So that's ridiculous. I'll get to that in a second. But the third reason I do believe that the Republicans should absolutely move forward is because in this election year, with how volatile the circumstances are surrounding the election, when you have Hillary Clinton Challenging Joe Biden and saying that Joe Biden under no circumstances should you concede this election. We have COVID up in the air and we know that this increase in mail-in voting leads to the potential for greater voter fraud. All of these circumstances combined lead us to a situation in which we really could be staring down the barrel of a contested election. We could be seeing a Bush versus Gore times 10. We could see an election scenario in which it's weeks before we actually know the full winner of the election. If a circumstance like that happens, you need to ensure that we have a strong, full Supreme Court, not an eight-member Supreme Court. The last thing we want is for a contested election to end in a four-four Supreme Court ruling. We need a full nine-member Supreme Court that is strong, that is uh, the highest caliber possible, especially given the circumstances surrounding this election. It's necessary. This is probably the most important reason in my mind why the Republican Senate GOP should push to get this done before the election, because we need to ensure that our judicial branch is as strong as possible given all the circumstances and the chaos surrounding November 3rd those are the top three reasons why I do believe that Republicans should move forward with the nomination process and the confirmation process before the election. They have the constitutional authority to do so. There's a historical precedence there. And heading into this volatile election with so much at stake, it is imperative that we have a full, strong, healthy Supreme Court. It's necessary. It's worth the political fallout that may take place. It is worth the various attacks that may come toward the Republicans over the next few weeks. It is worth the turmoil to make sure that we have a robust Supreme Court heading into this election. I also have a few personal reasons why I would really love to see this seat filled heading in before this election. I do believe that this is one of the primary reasons that President Trump was elected to this office, is for the health and the future of the courts. We've seen during his first term, he has nominated 216 federal judges, including two Supreme Court justices. He has had three vacancies during his first term. That's incredible. And if he's elected to the office again for a second term, it's likely that he could have one or two more. So there is a real turning point. And I I told people this in 2016. People asked, why do you support President Trump? I said, because of the courts. There is a future that is at stake here. And we've seen it coming for a few years now that this season in the Supreme Court is one where there is an old guard that is going to be replaced by a new guard and with the Supreme Court you serve lifetime appointments. So there's a real possibility here that the the future of our country, the the way in which the Constitution is interpreted is at stake for decades to come and my prayer was is that we would have a president that would nominate and appoint originalist, constitutionalist judges to the courts, people that would interpret the Constitution constitution as written with the founders original intent that would not shy away from judeo-christian values because those are the values that this country was founded upon and instead recognize the beauty of the american experiment found in the constitution and seek to create a more perfect union not by straying from the constitution or by revising history but instead by pressing more into the original intent of the constitution in order to continue to refine and reform this great nation that is my goal in the courts And I believe that that's a goal that's shared amongst conservatives. We have seen that in polls of conservative voters, the courts are always within the top three or four most important issues to voters. This is something that is consistently important across the board for conservative valued voters, religious voters, because we see the necessary component of our constitution and society, that it is the ultimate authority of our land underneath God, right? So obviously God's the ultimate authority of the land, but the the ultimate document that binds our country and our elected officials is the constitution. My supreme authority is not the president because the president is still subject to the constitution of the United States. So it is imperative, it is necessary to appoint judges that will recognize that. And over the last few decades amongst the progressive wing of the United States, there's been a push to nominate more and more judges to the court that have a more liberal way of interpreting the Constitution, a more modern way of interpreting the Constitution. We've even seen justices that are supposed to be conservatives, like John Roberts, actually seek to legislate from the bench. That is something that the Supreme Court was never intended to do. So actually, to save the Supreme Court from becoming more politicized in the future, we have to ensure that there are justices appointed to it and nominated to it that are actually interpreting the Constitution as written so that it doesn't become so political. Because if you actually interpret the Constitution as written, you recognize that your role is not legislating from the bench. That is Congress's job. Unfortunately, over the past few decades, Congress has gotten weak. They have pushed so many of their own issues off to the Supreme Court, and then you've got this progressive wing that seeks to legislate from the bench, so you've got this perfect storm where our Supreme Court has become so politicized because Congress has allowed it to be. Now, there's a real opportunity to reclaim the original intent of the Supreme Court. If protecting the unborn are important to you, if fighting for families are important to you, if protecting religious liberties are important to you, it is imperative that we seize this moment, that we reclaim the Supreme Court for what it was designed to be, an institution that judges impartially that does not accept bribes, that does not allow for politicization to rob their responsibilities, that interprets the Constitution as it was intended, that does not seek to revise history, that actually prioritizes Judeo-Christian values because those are what the country was founded upon, that does not seek to legislate from the bench, but instead seeks to be a righteous judge. If that is what we want out of the future, if we don't want to reframe the entire United States future, and instead we want to preserve what... Uh, has made this country special and instead seek to perfect the union through embracing the constitution more, not doing away with it more, then we need to seize on this moment. That is why Donald Trump was elected to the presidency. I'm utterly convinced of it. We've seen that in the polling. We've seen that when we talk about what's most important to voters. And I think that really will carry into this 2020 election. Now, where do we stand with this? Currently, there are uh, Republican insiders at the time of this recording, this is breaking news, that do believe that they do indeed have the 50 votes to move forward. Now, I say 50, you may say, well, that's a tie. Well, in the event that there's 50 votes, Vice President Pence steps in and casts the tie-breaking vote. Obviously, he will vote to confirm Trump's nominee, meaning that the Republicans would be able to pass this through. It looks like Cory Gardner out of Colorado who was on the fence, has said that he will indeed move forward with confirming the nominee if he believes that it's someone that will interpret the Constitution correctly and move forward as a fair judge. So that was somebody that was on the fence that now looks as though they will confirm that's a vote that Mitch McConnell really needed. It does look like there could be two or three senators that actually opt out and decide to deny a move forward before the election. Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins are the two that have verbally expressed that, and it looks like we could maybe have a third in Mitt Romney, which is why that vote would be brought to 50. But again, that's okay. If you have a fourth Republican senator that says, I'm not in for this, then you you run the race. of the nomination being denied. But with 50, you can get it through with Vice President Mike Pence casting that tie-breaking vote. So... That's where we stand with the Senate and the layout of, is this actually possible? It looks as though it is. And the Senate Republicans would not move forward in an election year knowing what this could politically cost them and the division that it could cause and the, the turmoil in the country that could set foot with some of these Democratic threats for violence. They would not move forward with this unless they were sure they had the votes, but they see it as worth it, which I'm glad they do. So in the event that this happens, that Trump really does nominate someone and the Senate confirms, when will this take place? Well... It will likely take place. Trump has made it clear that he he would like to wait until after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's memorial service. We'll see if he does that. But if, if that happens, then he would wait until Friday or Saturday to announce the nomination. And then the, the Senate would jump on it immediately and start to push to confirm. They would have to make a dead sprint until the election to get it done. But it's certainly a priority. And they have made it clear that that's something that they will push to do. Now, who would be appointed to the who would be nominated to the Supreme Court? That is a question we still do not have a direct answer to, although we really do have a top 2. There's kind of a top 5 and there's really a top 2. One is a U.S. Circuit Judge out of Florida, Barbara Lagoa. She is a Hispanic American. She was uh, born in Miami, but she's a Cuban American. Her parents actually fled from Castro's regime, which is incredible. They came to the United States to start a new life in freedom. It's actually incredible. Her dad had a dream of becoming a lawyer in Cuba before the communist regime took over, and therefore his dreams were obviously stripped of him. So he made a sacrifice, brought his family to the United States, and how incredible is it that now his daughter is able to be fulfilling these incredible achievements in the judicial world. It's it's a really inspiring story. Sounds like a really... Uh, close family, close-knit Catholic community. She is someone who does not have a very long, extensive judicial record, but we do know that she values the Constitution, and she is someone that uh, does not seek to interpret the Constitution over time, meaning she is not someone that believes that the Constitution changes meaning to catch up with the modern era, as many progressive justices on the Supreme Court do. So that's one example of, uh, or that's one of the top two choices. The other top two choice is a woman named Amy Coney Barrett. Now, this name may sound familiar because she was actually kind of in the top two when it was her and Justice Brett Kavanaugh back in 2018. She's an American attorney and jurist who serves as a circuit judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in Chicago. She's a textualist and self-identifies as a public-meaning originalist. Her judicial philosophy, excuse me, has been likened to that of her mentor and former boss, one of my favorite Supreme Court justices of all time, Antonin Scalia. Barrett's scholarship focuses on originalism, statutory interpretation, and stare decisis. So she is very much a believer that in order to understand the way in which we should interpret the Constitution, we have to look for the original meaning of the language and what the original meaning was for the people at the time that they wrote it. We cannot seek to interpret the Constitution with our modern era. Uh, That is not the goal. That's not uh, tried and true because then we are viewing the Constitution through our paradigm instead of how it was initially intended to be viewed through. And the Constitution does not change just because our circumstances change. So that is Amy Coney Barrett. She's an incredible judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals. She is a Catholic mother of seven, which is incredible. Her faith is very, very important to her. She's very pro-life. She has made it very clear that she is not someone that will legislate from the bench. In fact, she often calls out the people that do seek to legislate from the bench. She is a fighter and sounds like the type of person that we need on the court. So those are really the top two choices. We will see how this shakes out in the coming days, but that's where we're at. What have the Democrats promised to do if the Republicans move forward with this? Well, to put it simply, chaos. They have promised chaos. In fact, let me read you this headline here. This is out of the Daily Wire. Report. Dems considering, quote, total war if GOP fills Supreme Court seat want, quote, major changes and new states. Furious Democrats are considering, quote, total war next session if Republican press through and fill and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's vacant Supreme Court seat, Axios reports. And their plans may even include adding states to the union to ensure their permanent control of Congress. Some Democrats, like Senate Judiciary Committee member Richard Blumenthal, have made clear that they believe no response is off the table if President Donald Trump and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell follow through with plans to fill the seat with fewer than 50 days until the November presidential election. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi even noted Sunday that her caucus is considering pursuing impeachment, either a second round against Trump or a first round or a first attempt to oust Attorney General William Barr. Again, there's no, there's, no, there's no reason for this. There's no reason for impeachment. They won't be able to come up with anything that will be confirmed. It just shows how politicized impeachment is. They're using it as a weapon this point, not as a legitimate actual political practice. Well, we have our options, Pelosi said. We have errors in our quiver that I'm not able to discuss or not about to discuss right now. Representative Joe Kennedy III from Massachusetts, along with others, threatened to pack the Supreme Court with additional seats, a strategy Ginsburg herself opposed. She said that's an awful idea. Representative Jerry Nadler reportedly agreed, noting on Twitter that if, Senate McConnell, if Senator McConnell and Senate GOP were to force through a nominee during the lame duck session before a new Senate and president can take office, then the incumbent Senate should immediately move to expand the Supreme Court. But court packing isn't their only plan. According to Axios, Democrats are also considering two major changes to Congress itself that could keep them in control, and in the majority in both houses for years to come. Quote, adding Supreme Court justices, eliminating the Senate's 60-vote threshold to end filibusters, and statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico are all on the table, Axios says. Democrats are talking anew about pushing statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico, capturing the anything-goes spirit among Democrats amid the Supreme Court fight. One party strategist texted me, Guam want in, quote, the outlet Noted. So this is where we're at in the United States today. The Democrats are at a place where they have embraced radicalism. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Chuck Schumer did a joint press conference where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez actually advocated for radicalism, pushing her fellow Democrats to embrace radicalism moving forward into the future, impeaching at all costs, doing whatever they have to do to necessary to stop this from moving forward. And the Democrats have promised that if the Senate Republicans are able to move forward on this, they will do everything they possibly can in their power to simply remake the system to fit their advantage. We cannot tolerate that as a society. There is an expiration date that we have as a country for how long we can last in a society where there are prominent journalists, blue checks on Twitter that have hundreds of thousand followers that are able and allowed to say things like, if this doesn't go the way we want, we will burn the bleeping system down. If they are able to say that with no repercussions and no backlash from mainstream society, what type of crea- the society are we creating for the future, for our next generations? We're embracing this sore loser mentality where if you don't get your way, no worries. Instead of waiting till the next election and embracing democracy and voting for a candidate and trusting the American people will make the choice that they need to make, instead of doing that, you advocate to just remake all the rules because you lost. That is not a healthy, productive way to move forward in society. It's just not. In 2008 and in 2012, I was, of course, bummed when Obama won the presidency. I was not rooting for Obama in either instance. But at the end of the day, me and my conservative friends, people near me, we weren't saying things like, well, let's burn down the system. We weren't tweeting things like, let's just remake all the rules. We weren't advocating for Obama's impeachment because of the Iran nuclear deal, even though it was one of the worst political decisions, in my opinion, of United States history. But we didn't advocate for that. Instead, the perspective was, in 2016, we have another election coming. Let's make sure that we vote well, we encourage our friends to vote well, our communities to vote well, let's get after it and see what good we can do in this election, in this functioning democracy. That's the goal. And if we forget that moving forward, if we forget to embrace that, if we instead choose to go this vengeful, revenge-filled route that is not conducive to a healthy, productive society into the future. Radicalism does not work in the Constitution. If you're trying to abide by the Constitution, radicalism is not an option. So the radicals will choose radicalism and instead disregard the Constitution, remake the rules in order to benefit the way that they would like to play the game. Again, I'm not tolerating that in this country. We have to stand up against that speak out with any platform and voice that we have. In this coming election, we can use our votes to do that. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I am just telling you what's at stake not telling you who to cast your ballot for. You could totally disagree with me on all of this. You could say the stakes are high in the other direction, and we could duke that out and have a debate about that. But at the end of the day, from my perspective here, I'm seeing one side threaten violence if it doesn't go the way they want, and I'm seeing the other side abide by the Constitution. And yes, it's political, and yes, it's kind of messy at times, but at the end of the day, it's allowed and legal to happen. The Republicans aren't looking to remake the rules here. So I'll end with saying this, I'm certainly praying for peace because this season could be filled with a lot of chaos. Over the next 40 days, we could see a lot take place and a lot of ugliness in the political realm. And it's so necessary, I believe, for for Christians right now to stand up and be seeking the Lord, praying for calm heads to prevail, praying for wisdom to permeate every facet of our society. And for those that do not know the Lord to press into the Lord right now, because in a sea of chaos, God wants to be the peace and he wants to be the righteousness that prevails amidst the dysfunction in our society. So all that to say, that's how I'm leaving this for today. We start our election series formally on Thursday. I cannot wait. So we're going to talk about a very hot topic related to the election. I'm going to share with you both sides' arguments to it and then allow you to make the call on which you think aligns with your worldview as we head into the election and which way you would like to vote. I'm going to keep you in suspense as to what that topic will be about, but I'm really looking forward to Thursday's episode. Please come back and join me for that. I'm looking forward to it, and I will keep you updated on the video series. Again, please subscribe to the show on my website, Refining Politics and Culture, if you have not already. If you have not, please leave a positive review on Apple. That helps so much more than you know. It helps with the algorithm so that we can continue growing the show and the content. If you'd feel led and would desire to donate to the show, you can also do that on my website, Refining Politics and Culture. It has been a blast to talk to you today. I hope and pray you have a great next two days, and I cannot wait to speak to you again on Thursday. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.